to the Wellco Supplies CAODC podcast for August 2020. I'm John Bacon. Well, we started this podcast last August, which means we have been at it for one year. Hard to believe how time flies. We've had some great guests along the way, and I'd like to thank all of them for taking time out of their busy schedules to join us and share their expertise. And I'd also like to thank all of you for listening. We've seen our numbers come up substantially throughout the year. So thanks for tuning in and sharing and liking uh, the podcast online. Of course, who knew when we began that a year later we'd still be in a huge slump as an industry and uh, that the world would be in a pandemic. (laughs) Uh, What's great, however, is that if you listen uh, back to our guests, despite the numbers we are reporting, there always is a sense of optimism, which I think really speaks to the kind of people who work in this industry. You know, we've got a never-give-up attitude, a good sense of humor, and an ability to really put things in perspective. And I think that makes us who we are and and makes us successful regardless of the outcome. So let's hope that a year from now, we are all talking about high activity levels and a steady recovery for everyone. This month on the show, we have Dr. Mark Milkey, Executive Director of Research for the Canadian Energy Centre. Dr. Milkey joins us to discuss some of the research the CEC is doing and how it can help the Canadian energy industry with some of the battles that we're fighting in the public sphere. Um, And I don't know if it's just me, but it almost seems as though we've gotten a bit of a break from the attacks uh, by industry opponents since the pandemic began in March. It seems almost like a lifetime ago, but we began the year, if you'll recall, with rail blockades and uh, protests of the Trans Mountain Expansion Project. But since then, you know, if there's any bright side to this, uh, perhaps it's been that we've been given a bit of cover uh, for our industry as we uh, keep trying to dig out of the hole that we're in. And who knows, maybe it's because what we're going through right now is helping to provide some perspective of how important oil and gas is to our everyday lives. And, you know, hopefully that perspective will help generate some support for what we do every day. I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to see how valuable things like reliable power, uh, home delivery, ventilator tubes, ventilator machines, ambulances. I mean, when a situation like this arises, we see such a drastic change in our everyday lifestyles, and maybe that's helping us all appreciate just how good we actually had it. So here's hoping we can come out the other side of this with a refreshed appreciation for not just what it is that we do, but for the fact that we're all in this together, really. And at the end of the day, we're just looking to do the best we can. Um, All right. Let's get into this month's industry update. Our industry update is brought to you by CAODC Rig Data. CAODC Rig Data is the most accurate and up-to-date data on the Canadian drilling and service rig sector. If you'd like more information on how to access CAODC Rig Data, check out our website at caodc.ca. On the drilling side, in July we had only 959 operating days compared with 3,640 in July of 2019 for a decrease of 74% year over year. 
Active rigs for the month averaged 26, down from 150 in 2019, or a decrease of 21,700 jobs year over year. Our registered drilling fleet is now 505, down one from last month, and this time last year we had 546 registered rigs, drilling rigs. Provincially, in July, Alberta averaged 74% of active rigs, BC had 21%, and Saskatchewan 5%. In 2019, Alberta had 61% of active rigs, Saskatchewan had 27%, BC 6%, and Manitoba 2%. Based on the data from the last couple of months, it appears as though Saskatchewan has lost the bulk of market share this year with decreased activity. But in reality, everyone suffered. Um, you know, I'm not sure it really matters if you have 74% of next to nothing or 2% of next to nothing because it's still next to nothing. Uh, on a positive note, we are up above our record lows for active rigs that we set last month, and the early indicators for August are better still. So while we're only at about 30% of where we were last year, we are moving along with the markets and everyone else in an upward direction. According to their August 11 report, the U.S. Energy Information Administration estimates that demand for global petroleum and liquid fuels averaged 93.4 million barrels per day in July. So we're nearing the 100 million barrel per day mark again quite rapidly, which is great. Uh, they're predicting an average of $38 WTI for the remainder of 2020 and $45 WTI in 2021. EIA is also predicting natural gas prices to rise through Q4 of 2020 and into next year, estimating a price of $3.14 in February of 21. So these pricing estimates, uh, if they hold, should help stabilize activity in North America and hopefully allow us to keep up the steady increase in drilling and service work. As of today, August 19, we have 49 active rigs running up from 39 this time last month. On the service side, operating hours in July were down 49% over 2019 totals. July of this year, we saw 42,851 operating hours versus 84,667 in 2019, a decrease of uh, 41,816. Month over month, we had 34,960 op hours in June, so we're up 700, or sorry, 7,891 hours, or 23%. The working service rig count in July was 313, up from 265 in June, but down from 488 in July of last year. Uh, another stat that we track in our system is hours per working rig. We just started tracking that when we made the changes to the uh, service rig data reporting a few months back. Um, so hours per working rig, we were at 88 this year as opposed to 120 in July of 2019. We are starting to see some good traction in BC and Saskatchewan on their respective reclamation programs and we know uh, the Alberta government is continuing to streamline their processes as well. Things haven't happened as quickly as we all had hoped in Alberta but we continue to stay focused and we'll keep you updated with any new information in that regard. All in all I think it's safe to say we're moving in the right direction albeit pretty slowly but 
it is positive momentum, and you know, hopefully we can all feel good about that. Um, plus, the weather's been pretty good too, so that's a nice bonus. And I guess uh, you know, here's to a great end to summer and an excellent September and Q4. That is it for the industry update for August 2020. Our industry update is brought to you as always by CAODC Rig Data. CAODC Rig Data is the most accurate and up-to-date data on the Canadian drilling and service rig sector. If you would like more information on how to access CAODC Rig Data, check out our website at caodc.ca. Okay, please stick around because after the break, we're joined by Dr. Mark Milkey, Executive Director of Research for the Canadian Energy Centre. Back in 30 seconds. WealthCore is proud to support those who are working hard to keep our country running. Proud to be a Canadian-owned welding filler metal supply company in a country that has the highest environmental and human rights standards in the world. WellCore supports ethical oil. WellCore supports the Canadian oil and gas sector. The world needs ethical oil. The world needs Canadian oil. Let WellCore Supplies help you make that happen. Welcome back. Our special guest this month on the WellCore Supplies CAODC podcast is Dr. Mark Milkey, public policy analyst, keynote speaker, author, and columnist with six books and dozens of studies published across Canada and internationally in the last two decades. Currently, Dr. Milkey is the Executive Director of Research for the Canadian Energy Centre, and he joins us to talk about some of the research the Centre has been doing on behalf of the Canadian energy industry. Welcome, Mark. How are you today? I am well. Thanks for having me on, John. I really appreciate the time. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, I was reading Terry Edom's article last week in the BOE report, and I think he said it best when he wrote that after a bit of a slow start, the Canadian Energy Centre has been doing some really great research these days. Uh, could you share your thoughts on how things have changed from the beginning until now and, and how you're feeling about where the, the centre is? Sure. I think we're all feeling pretty good about where the centre is at. I mean, I think your members would understand this for sure, and a lot of other people on, that are entrepreneurs who are entrepreneurs would get it as well. Uh, it's a startup organisation, so uh, you try a few things, uh, you tweak a few things, and then you uh, you find what works and what doesn't. And what we're finding what works is getting out a lot of good research uh, into the public uh, domain there and uh, looking at things from a slightly different angle or a new angle. Uh, so a good example of that is, first of all, adding up all the taxes and revenues that the energy sector has sent to governments over the last 20 years. We produced that paper a couple of months ago, and the, the tally there is $359 billion. We looked at, for example, support among First Nations in Alberta and British Columbia for oil and gas development. Well, among those of the public position, it's overwhelmingly in favor of oil and gas development. There's a chunk of First Nations in B.C. that don't have any public positions, but you look at Alberta, but you look at even the First Nations in B.C. that are on the record, you'll find a vast majority are in favor of oil and gas development. So we've been producing research like that, which I think hits home, which I think is new, which I think is original, and I think it helps summarize really uh, the effect, the impact, the usefulness, the benefit of oil and gas in Canada to various communities, whether it's First Nations in British Columbia and Alberta, 
whether it's uh, the proportion of small businesses in the oil and gas sector. I mean, as we'll discuss in a moment, I know there there are a lot of small businesses. Many are your members that uh, work in the oil and gas sector, and yet, uh, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the big business. Nothing wrong, you know, with the small business. They they all have their uses, but the notion that uh, oil and gas is somehow just run by international conglomerates uh, is simply simply not true. I mean, there's been a plethora of startups and entrepreneurs over the last, well, I don't know, since LaDuke, since before you and I, and before our you know parents were around, probably. Um, so anyway, there there's lots of research coming out from the Canadian Energy Center. I think we're all feeling good about it, and I think it's uh, more and more and more people are seeing it. So I think that's really positive. It's just uh, it's a startup, and uh, I think we're, we're starting to hit our stride. Well, that's great. Um, so today we'd like to discuss two recent studies that we've seen. Um, the first is, I think it's your latest, it's the uh, GHG emissions in the Canadian oil and gas sector. And then, as you noted, the one that really applies to the energy services sector in particular is the study titled uh, Big Oil is Mainly Small Oil in Canada. So starting with the emissions study, for our listeners who haven't read it, what were some of the key takeaways for you? Sure. What my colleague Lenny Kampen and I did, and I really must give all the credit to Lenny, uh, I helped make some of this uh, this work more how can I put it? Uh, you know, I, I, I delve through it after my colleague Lenny Kaplan comes up with the data, and we go back and forth trying to find the most presentable way to to get it out to the, there to the public, and that's where I help. But uh, Lenny really deserves the credit on digging out the research from various sources on emissions, and, and specifically for key emission intensity measurements. And that's what the study is about, Canada's GHG emissions records since 2000. And so, for example, we look at the ratio of emissions. Again, intensity produced to gross domestic product. So, um, you know, it's one thing to talk about emissions or emissions intensity uh, in isolation, but you better figure out whether your economy is growing like gangbusters, because if it is, or if your population is going up as well, that kind of matters to the kind of emissions you're going to have, whether Australia or Canada or Russia or Saudi Arabia. We look at emissions produced per person. We look at uh, emissions released per unit of energy, and we look at emissions per barrel of oil produced in the oil sands. And the key findings, very simply... Uh, for your audience, and I'd encourage them to look at it. We've got lots of graphs, which hopefully make it uh, an easier read than just the data or what you'll hear through through the, the earplugs here. Um, Canada's emissions intensity has fallen by 30% over the last 20 years, so that's positive. Uh, our intensity in Canada, emissions intensity, is lower than a, a number of other energy-producing and consuming nations. Um, in fact, there's a decline in our emissions intensity uh, per million dollars of GDP. So, again, taking an economic look, taking into account economic growth, it's one thing, again, to say, well, yeah, but your emissions are up in Canada. It's quite another to say, yeah, but what's, what's the emissions intensity? Have you, have you improved in terms of, you know, per, per unit of GDP or per billion dollars of GDP? And we have. So emissions intensities in Canada are down by 48%. Um, per million dollars of GDP. So that's in our study, for example. I doubt most people are aware of that dramatic decline when you, when you again, you take a look at a growing economy but falling emissions intensity. Uh, as of the latest year for which we have data, we show that Canada's emissions intensity per person, per capita, in other words, we take into account a growing population in Canada, um, that we're nearly the same as Australia and Saudi Arabia, and we're lower than Qatar, um, and slightly higher than the United States. So, 
those are some of the key findings along with, you know, we look at the mining, quarrying, and oil and gas extraction sectors. These are statistical categories that we bring out. We look at fuel combustion, combustion, combustion emissions intensity in the industrial sector and show again that we're falling uh, when, you, when you analyze the intensity uh, vis-a-vis the economy, vis-a-vis the industrial sector, and so on. And, of course, we show in our study that oil sands emissions intensity has been falling over the past decade uh, in particular, but a decline of 22%. Uh, when you measure it on a, uh, tons of uh, CO2e per barrel. So there, there's a lot of data here, and some of your listeners will be very interested perhaps in, uh, in the deep dive into the data, um, but I think, you'll, I think a lot of them will simply be able to look at the charts and, and figure out what we're doing as well. Uh, so I, I think uh, best advice for some is to look at the, uh, the study in particular and, and breathe through it, and you may find some surprising results, which are not necessarily well-known. Um, and, and there's some room for optimism here as well. Well, that, the units of measure in particular are interesting, and so that was one of the questions so challenging to communicate statistics like that. How difficult was it to set up the methodology? Very, very. And what we do with our studies at the Canadian Energy Centre, this was a longer one, right? We, we produce some short fact sheets, which are kind of two- to four-page briefs. Uh, we also produce what we call research briefs, which are often 10 to 20 pages, and this falls into the latter category. What we do is we ask some peer reviewers, so some people that have uh, deep knowledge of energy uh, and or statistics to peer review our papers. And in this case, we had four peer reviewers. We said, okay, uh, look at what we're doing. Uh, tell us what you think. Uh, give us some suggestions. So it is actually very challenging uh, to, to, to lay out some of this. Um, keep in mind that this was also a compendium of information that's really out there that we wanted to put in one place. So we used information from the International Energy, Energy Agency. We also used uh, recent work from IH Market, uh, who some of your listeners would know in 2018 and 2020. Uh, BMO Capital Markets, the World Resources Institute, for example, great data on historical greenhouse gas emissions around the world, mm-hmm. and the usual suspects, if I can put it that way, uh, the usual sources which are available in Canada, which have a Canadian focus, Statistics Canada, of course, Natural Resources Canada, and some others. So what we did is we looked through all of these sources and said, okay, what's What's the most recent data? What's, you know, what's the data telling us? And we lay it all out there, good, bad, ugly, and, um, and that, helps, uh, that helps us to our end to, uh, mm. to produce these graphs that, that people see. Well, pretty remarkable in terms of the amount of reductions that have happened. Um, as far as the technology or the processes for those reductions, do you know or did you consider looking into who has funded that? Well, we didn't, because in one sense, to I think to most readers, it's not relevant who funds a particular study, right? Um, I mean, I suppose in some cases it can, but what you want to always do when it comes to research reports is go to the best statistics, best data out there, uh, compile it, make sure it's reviewed properly, and then publish it. And you always want to take the strongest, most credible organizations and statistics and data and that's what you want in your report. So, no, a bit, again, some of the organizations your listeners will be very familiar with, whether it's uh, literally Environment and Climate Change Canada, or whether it's BMO Capital Markets, or World Resources Institute, or Statistics Canada, or IHS Market, right? So it's a, it's a pretty broad selection that we've got in terms of sources for the data in the report, and uh, 
what we did again is try and make it as accessible as possible using the most recent data. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think you know what interested me there was that I would assume that the majority of these reductions are being driven um, from the companies themselves. So, oh, sorry. Uh, yes, uh, you're right. I misunderstood. You're you're talking about uh, yeah where this is occurring as opposed to who's funding the research. My that's right. my mistake. But absolutely. Um, I mean, we didn't look into who who did this, but it's quite clear that the companies and the companies in Alberta in particular, or Saskatchewan, or Northern British Columbia, where natural gas markets exist and extraction exists, these are the ones. It's Western Canadian companies, a lot of your members, I imagine, and others that are driving these reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. So that's very positive, and it's quite clear that it's having a material effect upon greenhouse gas emissions intensity. Um, and that's, again, a lot of what our study is about, is the intensity of emissions. It's being driven down dramatically in some cases, uh, and more modestly in other cases. But the record is, is one of improvement over the last decade and two decades, where the information uh, goes back in our study that far. Yeah, and I was really surprised to see that... Uh the oil sands, you know, that typically take the heaviest criticism for the emissions are emitting only 4 to 6 percent more than the global average of crude oils from production to end use. So the first thing that jumped to mind was, you know, if once TMX gets going and then if we end up seeing Keystone XL at some point, will that bring down the emissions even more? Uh, I honestly can't answer the question. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, maybe it would be a bit speculative on my part to to uh, comment on that though what I can say is it's quite clear uh, from some of the other reports we've released if you look at natural gas for example and most of your listeners would be familiar with a lot of coal plants still being built in Asia for example and elsewhere around the world if you look at natural gas wherever it's from Australia or us in Canada where we'd like to get a lot more offshore and into the Asian market it's quite clear that if your concern is greenhouse gas emissions, then you can get down a lot of greenhouse gas around the world by using natural gas, by replacing coal-fired plants for electricity with natural gas plants. And so when you take a look at, that, uh, at this on a worldwide scale, which is what we try and do in this and other studies, uh, you'll find that there are great, there's great potential actually to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I and mean, one of the things we point out right at the beginning of the study is in the study called, and again, I'll give you listeners the, the title of it, Evaluating the Canadian Oil and Gas Sector's GHG Emissions Intensity Records Since 2000. One of the things we do in the study, which, which everyone can find online at the uh, Canadian Energy Centre website, is we point out, because some people know this and some people don't, that uh, GHG emissions from Canada are 1.6% of all emissions in the world. China is at over 23%. The oil sands is just 0.1% of total world emissions, as you probably know. The oil and gas sector itself is 0.3%. Um, and again, Canada's total emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, are 1.6%. But when you've got China at over 23%, the rest of the world, uh, excluding a whole bunch of countries, uh, as you'll see in our graphic, the rest of the world uh, beyond that, uh, and even Russia is four, sorry, three times the size of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions as a percentage of, of the worldwide total. What people will understand, and I hope they understand more and more, is that the more that we can do to reduce emissions overseas, uh, that's actually where you're going to get the big bang um, 
for the buck. That's where you're going to be able to reduce emissions around the world. It's not by putting the oil and gas sector in Canada to business, to be frank. Uh, where your reductions are going to come from are uh, where it's going to come from is where most emissions exist, and they're not in Canada. So uh, to some degree, you can say we've done a lot in reducing the emissions that we can. Maybe some future emissions will, will also occur. That seems to be the case from groups like IHS Market, organizations like IHS Market. They forecast that. But it's quite clear that if if greenhouse gas emissions are your main concern, and, and they, it certainly is for a lot of people, what you want to do is you want to look at how you can get emissions down in China, in Asia, in Africa. Um, so that's that's where you're going to get the biggest bang for the buck. Yeah, it seems like almost a disproportionate amount of criticism has been on Canada's oil and gas industry, given those numbers that you've just uh, mentioned, and in particular the oil sands when you're looking at less than you know 0.1% of, uh, of global emissions. Well, so. it's been a perfect storm, hasn't it? Uh, there's, no, there's no great mystery as to why. I think it has a lot to do with we're a small northern country, so um, next door to, uh, you know, obviously our American uh, neighbors, uh, Colossus, uh, and there are lots of people who think greenhouse gas emissions shouldn't exist at all. That's not a realistic position or that we should transition overnight, which is not a realistic position. And they've made Canada a target and they've made your members, they made oil and gas a target. And I think that's unfortunate. I think it's unrealistic. Uh, it's not just an opinion. I mean, you're familiar with the work, I'm sure, of Dr. Vaslav Smil from the University of Manitoba, uh, environment professor Emeritus, who has said, look, you cannot transition by decree. And it's going to take some time. It's going to take more than several decades, in his opinion, to get to a much lower carbon economy. So we can all do what we can. Companies in Alberta and Western Canada can do what they can. And again, the biggest bang for the buck is going to be overseas and other countries and foreign countries where uh, greenhouse gas emissions are significant, much more significant than Canada. That's where the biggest reduction is going to occur. But yeah, we're, we've become, as I think almost everyone knows now, a perfect target for a perfect storm of anti-oil and gas activists who would like to put oil and gas in Canada business. And I think that's unfortunate. I think it's misdirected. Uh, I think they should be more pragmatic than that. I think they should look around the world. I think they should uh, work with industry to try and get emissions down, but not try and, and put the oil and gas sector out of business. And obviously I wouldn't be doing my job or I wouldn't be at this job if I didn't, if that wasn't my uh, core conviction. Um, the greenhouse gas emissions uh, are a problem, but uh, I don't think they're an insurmountable problem, but they are a technological problem. And then it's going to take some time to solve that. Uh, and it's certainly not going to happen overnight. Again, I, I would encourage those who don't know who Dr. Vaslav Smil is, an environment professor who uh, is fully cognizant of uh, the growth in greenhouse gas emissions and the human uh, human caused greenhouse gas emissions. I would, I would encourage listeners to look into the work of Dr. Vaslav Smil from the University of Manitoba. Uh, he has some terrific analysis on just this point. So. Uh, long answer to short question, but yes, we've become a target for, for those who, I suppose, rather than want to work pragmatically or practically around the world, it's just easier to mount, mount a campaign and raise money against um, nice nice Canada as opposed <laughs> to doing serious work about reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Exactly. I mean, we're out of business. We're out of business, uh, and what do you take away? Uh, you take away literally 0.3%. Um, 
if you take away Canada's oil and gas sector, you take away 0.3% of the world's emissions. And I may be talking to the converted here, but tell me how that helps the planet. It doesn't. Especially when, you know, those companies are actually working on emissions-reducing technologies all the time. Right. Right. And, so there's and, a knock-on effect, right? So yeah. as technology gets transferred, stolen, bought, bartered, whatever, to other companies around the world, uh, that, again, is the, the, the knock-on effect and the positive effect where greenhouse gas emissions will be able to reduce around the world, again, along with other policies, such as replacing coal with natural gas. Mm. So great information to debunk the, uh, the emissions um, and the oil sands uh, disproportionate emissions uh, misinformation campaign, I guess, or, or one of the angles that uh, the angles are using. Another one, of course, is the big oil angle. And so the second of your studies uh, we'd like to talk about is big oil is mainly small oil in Canada. So, I mean, I think it's, pr- it's pretty clear that um, our, our opponents have been using the big oil angle uh, for quite a while and, and trying to make it sound like nameless, faceless corporations in, in pursuit of, uh, you know, endless profits are willing to use the planet uh, at their will just to make those profits. Um, but what you're saying here is that in Canada, according to the study, 95.8% of all oil and gas companies are small, which you've defined as a company with between one and 99 employees. Uh, 3.7 percent uh, looks like 3.7 percent are medium-sized, or between 100 and 499 employees, and then only 0.5 percent are large, which you've defined as 500 employees and above. Were you surprised by that? Yes and no. I mean, how this was inspired actually was a conversation I had many years ago with Gary Leach, who was then the head of the Small Explorers and Producers Association of Canada, then known as CPAC. And uh, shortly after I moved to Calgary, I think it was around probably 2006 or seven. I think, when I talked to Gary Leach, and he'd mentioned to me over lunch, because I didn't know much about the oil and gas sector in Alberta. I'm from British Columbia originally. But he had mentioned, look, what you got to understand about the oil and gas sector in Alberta specifically is that there are a lot of small and medium-sized businesses involved, and that's not necessarily the case in other countries uh, for various reasons. Right? Norway has, I think, mainly, if not completely, offshore oil. So um, other countries, the same thing, or other countries, it's always been the big companies involved in production. Maybe they got leases 100 years ago or whatever it is, whatever the reason is, um, or only they can attract the capital or they don't have the entrepreneurs that that Canadians uh, seem to produce. Whatever the reason, other countries do not have the plethora of small and medium-sized businesses involved in the oil and gas sector, as does Alberta. And that was Leach's point to me, and I always kept that at the back of my head, and then several months ago, a colleague and I decided to go down this angle and actually check out if this was true. And as you just mentioned, it is, uh, especially relative, for example, the United States. And so both the U.S. and uh, Canadian uh, statistical agency, Statistics Canada in the case of, of, of Canada and the United States Census Agency, uh, define a small and medium and large-sized businesses. Um, and in the case of small business, as you just mentioned, for Canada, that's any business with fewer than 90, fewer than 100 employees, medium is 100 to 500, and a big company, corporate company, is 500. In the United States, it's defined slightly differently. But if you, if you standardize that between the two countries, what we found is 
that uh, 99.1%, a vast majority of Canadian oil and gas companies are, are small or medium-sized. They have between 1 and 499 employees. Well, in the United States, uh, it's just 83%, or, or flipping it another way, under 1% of Canadian oil and gas companies uh, are over 500 employees, where that proportion in the United States is about 17%, have more than 500 employees. I think that's astounding. And again, it shows, to, it shows the degree to which really oil and gas in Canada is, is small and medium-sized business. Now, obviously, you can have some large companies with large employee counts. Um, and, and so perhaps in a future study, we'll look at that if the data is available. But we went with the available data, data from Statistics Canada and the U.S. Census Bureau, and then we, we did some comparisons to Europe, uh, Finland, sorry, uh, Norway, and then the European Union to also make some comparisons and, and um, had to look at some specific numbers there to make comparisons. But again, all of this, the corollary of all of this is that uh, this really is, you know, contrary to expectations or perception, oil and gas is has a ton of small businesses, multiple small businesses in Canada. And in part, it explains how wealth gets distributed. Um, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with big corporations. I'm not an anti-corporate guy. Um, Corporations can attract some pretty significant capital and do things small businesses can't. And there's obviously some nimbleness that's that's there for small and medium-sized businesses that's not available to to large corporations. So it's you know you can chew and and uh, you know you can you can walk and chew gum at the same time. Canada can have both and does have both. But what was intriguing to me was just the the preponderance of small and medium-sized businesses in the oil and gas sector. And I think more people around the country should know that because if if and when well the sector has been harmed. Um, when you harm the oil and gas sector, you're harming a sector that has a pretty high degree of small and medium-sized businesses. And, uh, I mean, harming the oil and gas sector and extraction sector in this country is, is uh, wrong-headed for so many reasons. But it's also um, it, it's a bad idea because you are hurting a lot of small businesses as well. Yeah, well, that I mean, that was something that really sort of prompted some questions when I was reading it. And it, and it says here that in Norway there are only 52 oil and gas extraction firms compared with 1,383 in Canada. And I mean, you know, I don't know if there's a metric for determining how an industry's wealth is distributed among the population, but it would seem to me that, you know, the more people who can get out there, create their own businesses, start employing people and, and you know, bringing that economic uh, uh, development into their communities, the better. And Absolutely. And I think this is something uh, I recall from the conversation with Gary Leach years ago, which is... Uh, that when you have these smaller firms, of course, and you've got a stake in it, or, you know, even medium-sized firms, they start up, and there are employees with shares in the company, they benefit from more than just a wage, which has historically been, I mean, the oil and gas sector pays quite well, one of the highest-paying industries in the country, as everyone knows, um, and as this, just these statistics bear out. But beyond that, you also, you know, there, there's the possibility of, of shares in a company that hopefully grows over time. Uh, this has been the norm until a recent, you know, five-year period. This has been the norm where a lot of these companies uh, start very small, grow a little bit, sell themselves off to a, uh, a slightly or a bigger company, and and all those employed benefit. Um, and then, of course, there's, there's so much spin-off activity from capital-intensive industries, which is what oil and gas is. Um, that that also benefits people. It's why wages, uh, you know, incomes are the highest in Alberta vis-a-vis the rest of the country. Or same thing in northern British Columbia or in Newfoundland or in Saskatchewan where you see the oil and gas sector pays uh, significantly higher wages 
vis-a-vis other sectors in the country. And so that's, yeah, and the more businesses you have going down this route, uh, the more possibility there is of diffusing uh, the kind of money that that, uh, is invested and flows into the oil and gas sector. Um, Again, there's nothing wrong with big companies, but, I mean, think about it. If you have one, if you have five big companies in a a country and uh, the shareholder base is anywhere in the world, that's fine. I'm a capitalist. I don't mind in the dispersion of wealth that way either. But it's quite clear that in Canada, the dispersion of wealth, dispersion of wealth also happens at the very local level through all these companies involved in uh, oil and gas plays uh, over the last six decades. Mm-hmm. And I think the barriers to entry are a little bit lower. I know that uh, we've done a little bit of work just looking at you know, what it costs to get into various occupations that pay a certain amount and you know, looking at comparisons between you know what it takes to become a doctor what it takes to become a teacher um, you know and what it takes to become a rig manager in in uh, in our uh, in our uh, you know which applies to us and um, you know the training for becoming a rig manager is predominantly paid whereas if you're studying to become a doctor you're paying you know tuition every year and and uh, you know it takes upwards of 10 years, I would imagine, if you're going to be a specialist, I'm not too sure. But, uh, you know, the costs associated with, um, I guess, getting to a level where you can draw a particular salary and, and across a lot of, uh, of these professions are quite high, whereas uh, within oil and gas, at least within drilling and well servicing, you're typically getting paid uh, for that training along the way to gather that knowledge. So, you know, huge benefits for uh, for Canadians who might not have access to education or who might might not have the the means to uh, to pay for that access. Well, I think that's an often forgotten point. Whether you're on a First Nations reserve near an oil or natural gas play, or whether you're just out of high school and don't yet know what you want to do with your life, and we all know, I mean, you can you can tell me, John, if this is apocryphal, but I mean, the I, the, the stories of someone just out of high school who's 18 or 19 going up to Fort McMurray during the boom, making 100k a year, delivering water, right? Um, in a truck. I mean, maybe that's apocryphal. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's there is certainly a lower barrier to entry. And, um, and in fact, I know there's some previous studies I've done for other organizations where really, uh, you know, there, there, there was a greater proportion of young adults employed in Alberta and in part again because the oil and gas sector was booming, creating all sorts of opportunities for educated and uh, those with very little education. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I think again about the possibility of someone from a First Nations Reserve who's more likely to get employment if they're near an oil or natural gas play than if you're on a northern reserve, say, in Quebec or Manitoba, far from any opportunity. Um, or what it takes, you're right, to get into the oil and gas sector um, vis-a-vis, say, aerospace. I mean, I, I hope aerospace thrives in Canada as well, but it's quite clear that to become an engineer uh, in the aerospace sector um, takes a lot of time, just as being an engineer in any sector does. But again, there's such huge capital investment in the oil and gas sector, traditionally there has been, that there are all these spin-off effects where um, those with lower levels of education also benefit tremendously, uh, as do the communities, um, as do government revenues and the rest of it. But there, there's certainly something to that. And I think that's actually forgotten a lot as well, because a lot of people in the country for years have talked about, uh, you know, we need good middle-class jobs. And it's always struck me as odd that some of the same people don't see the relevance of a booming oil and gas sector in Canada or, or the need to keep it booming, the need to not make it onerous, the need to not put it out of business, which is exactly what we're facing in some government policies or activists. 
because it's it's you know there's a huge blue collar component to the oil and gas sector, and they're good middle class and upper middle class jobs, and even um, those again without much education can make a decent income. It's like the old manufacturing sector. I don't know post World War II. Um, in northeastern, in the northeastern United States, or to some degree Ontario and Quebec, uh, well, there's a huge manufacturing component, as you know, in oil and gas, and um, yeah, there there are low barriers to entry. So, I've always thought it's crazy that uh, some oppose oil and gas development in Canada for various reasons, but again, because this is the land of opportunity when it comes to. Um, middle-class jobs, and we used to be creating them like crazy in this country in the oil and gas sector, and that's been stunted, in part because of the 2014-2015 drop in oil prices, but as everyone knows, also in part because it's really difficult to get investment into Canada because of some of the barriers to getting things done and some of the activists who want to set a business. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, with all of the, the misinformation um, in the media today, I think that uh, a lot of Canadians forget these types of conversations so it's great that uh, you and the energy center are doing the work that can can some bring some information into the public sphere that encourages people to think about things from from that perspective so we'd like to thank you very much uh for your time uh, can you give us uh, a bit of a preview as to what you guys might be uh having on the docket for research in the next little while um certainly uh, one thing i'd say though is make sure uh, you check out the Canadian Energy Center website, and we now have an email on the research side of things where you can sign up for the weekly fact sheets and, and research briefs that we uh, produce. And we've got a full schedule in the fall coming up. But uh, we're going to continue to look at some First Nations issues in the fall. We're also going to look at some regional breakdowns of the benefits of oil and gas, uh, you know, in British Columbia, for example, or in Quebec. Um, and Atlantic Canada, right? I don't think people are necessarily aware, for example, that there are manufacturing companies in Ontario that rely heavily on purchases from Alberta companies or Saskatchewan companies or Northern British Columbia companies involved in oil and gas exploration. So we'll be publishing some work on that, trying to make it real to people in the rest of the country. I think most Albertans understand well the importance of oil and gas to the economy, certainly the provincial economy and the national economy. I'm not sure yet uh, other Canadians necessarily see the link, at least on a day-to-day level. So we'll be trying to promote some of that knowledge across the country, uh, again, in, in, in areas where traditionally you don't necessarily think about oil and gas on a day-to-day basis, and uh, whether it's Quebec or Ontario or Atlantic Canada or British Columbia. So we'll be doing a lot of work uh, that is relevant to those regions and provinces in particular. Excellent. Well, we look forward to that information, and we thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, John. Thanks again for joining us on the Wealthcore Supplies CAODC podcast. We'd like to thank our special guest this month, Dr. Mark Milkey, and our sponsor, Weldcore Supplies, the filler metal experts. Weldcore has been with us since the beginning, and we could not have reached our one year of episodes without them. So thank you very much to Leroy, Amanda, and the whole crew at Weldcore. We really appreciate your sponsorship. And last but not least, we'd of course like to thank all of you very much for listening to us for a year for downloading, for sharing and liking, and for all the great feedback. As always, if you have any suggestions for guests you'd like to see, please send us a note to communications at caodc.ca. I hope you enjoy the rest of the summer. The weather is great, 
and we'll see you in September. So until then, keep it turning to the right.